Hello. Welcome to another episode of Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Vulture Senior Editor, Jesse David Fox. This is the show where a comedian picks a joke of theirs to play and then discuss. Our guest for this episode is Wyatt Cenac, former Daily Show correspondent and future host of a political comedy series on HBO. The joke he picked is about Black History Month and Captain America and all things in between. Though the joke appears on his last album, Furry Dumb Fighter, I wanted to pick the version from his CISO show, Night Train. One, because CISO closed down and wanted to give people an opportunity to hear this version. Second, because it's recorded in Brooklyn at the weekly comedy show he hosted for five years. As we discuss in the interview, these geographical facts are significant to his career trajectory. Two notes before I start the joke. First, it's an audio-friendly joke, but you, you should know in it Wyatt is wearing a tan wool sweater with Malcolm X on the back. Second, this episode was taped live in front of a packed house at New York Comic Con. What I'd learned right before I went on is it was specifically packed with people squatting in the 800-plus person hall waiting for the Black Mirror panel that we were apparently opening up for. Wyatt handled this like a pro, but I just thought I'd tell you so you wouldn't be left wondering, why is Wyatt referencing Black Mirror so much? Is it a big influence on his work? With that covered, here's Wyatt, live at Night Train, followed by Wyatt and I, live from Comic-Con. Enjoy. I know you guys are only clapping like that because it's Black History Month. (laughs) I get it and I appreciate it. Thank you guys so much for coming out here. This is the first of... Oh, right, sorry, yeah. This is... It's Black History Month. Or... I'm shooting the uh, blackest, most hipster remake of Drive ever. (laughs) Just go around riding a bicycle with a Malcolm X sweater. (laughs) Black History Month is upon us. Here's the thing, Rebecca. There's Rebecca right here. I told these people that it's February because that's when this is supposed to air. And and so they're playing along. They're playing along to make you all feel better. All these people, we're all just living a lie for you. So now let's continue with this lie. Black History Month is upon us. (laughs) I always personally feel very strange about Black History Month. Because, like, I'm glad it's there, but at the same time, it's just history. So I feel like when we separate it, it's as though we're somehow saying it's not part of the American story and it's not part of the American experience. But more importantly, I guess what bothers me about it is that nobody actually learns any black history during Black History Month. And when I say nobody, I mean white people. Because that's the thing. There's no consequence to going through the month of February and not learning any black history. Like, if we want to take Black History Month seriously, there need to be some consequences. Like, for real, for the month of February, like, black police officers should be able to pull white people over under suspicion they don't know who Harriet Tubman is. (laughs) Just like, oh, you don't? Well, I'm taking you downtown. What, to jail? No, to a library, you idiot. I'm going to lock you in there for 28 days. 
will make you read, write book reports, and watch the movie Selma. Which, that was a good movie. Round of applause. Who saw Selma? All right. Wow. That's, uh, both surprisingly high and disappointingly low at the same time. It's a very good movie. If you haven't seen it, you should see it. It's a very good movie. Brad Pitt produced it. So if you're a fan of his, his name is in the credits. <laughs> you know. He did, he produced that. He also produced 12 Years a Slave. And after Hurricane Katrina, he went down to New Orleans and he built homes in low-income neighborhoods. And all those things are really amazing, wonderful things when you look at them individually. But when you look at them together, it kind of feels like Brad Pitt went on one of those genealogy websites. <laughs> Just found out something disturbing. <laughs> pop, pop, no! <laughs> I'll be honest, I went to see Selma because I thought that after the credits there was going to be a scene for the next Marvel movie. That's the only reason I go see movies now. I just go see movies to see the teaser for the next movie. And then I go see that movie for the teaser for the next one. It just, it's the smart thing to do. Like, how many people here, round of applause, who saw the Avengers movie? That's more than saw Selma. You've made my point for me. I'm just saying, you want people to see your movie, just put a teaser for a Marvel movie in there. Like, after the credits, could have just been like Martin Luther King walking through the halls of the White House after having talked to the president about the civil rights bill, and then maybe he bumps into Captain America, who looks at him, and is just like, get the fuck off me, nigga! Because keep in mind, this is the 60s. He is the captain of the America that is. Nobody then thought there was gonna be any progress with race relations. Least of all, Captain America, which if you don't know anything about Captain America, Captain America's a guy from World War II who got jacked up on steroids, then frozen in time, and now has to live in the present as a man with old man thoughts and a young man's face. Like, think about how difficult it is for your grandparents not to call people Oriental. <laughs> At least they have the benefit of looking old. This dude looks like somebody you would find on Tinder. Like, that's what's fucked up for him. He has to use all of his super strength to seem super tolerant. <laughs> Superman's weakness is kryptonite. Captain America's is just a slip of the tongue. <laughs> or somebody going into his garage and finding that one shield of his that has the Confederate flag on it. <laughs> and he's just like, no, that's my heritage. Let's kill some time before the Black Mirror panel. How does this joke make you think of Black Mirror most? <laughs> you know, when I think about just all of Charlie Brooker's work, which is amazing, 
Um, I think what he does so well is kind of subvert what our expectations are. And I think with this joke as well, I could do this the whole time. <laughs> we could just talk about San Junipero and I'll answer. I like that I got applause for just a word. Like, that was it. Just, I said two words, and it was great. Like, now I'm your friend, you'll all carry me out on your shoulders, and let another group of 500 people in to see the Black Mirror panel. Right? Nope? Oh, okay. All right. Know your place, Wyatt. Okay, so now we will talk about the joke. Sure. It's about Black History Month, which... One thing I found interesting preparing is Black History Month was sort of officially nationally recognized uh, by white people in 1976. Congratulations. Yes, uh, we appreciate it, which was also the year Wyatt Snack was born. Oh, that's true, yeah. 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 So yeah. what was your history with Black History Month growing up and through the point where you're writing this? When I was a kid growing up in Texas, every Black History Month, I went to a Catholic all-boys school, and every Black History Month, I was chosen out of all of the kids in the school, which there were not many of us that were black. So I was chosen to give a speech <laughs> to the entire student body and all the faculty every year. They were like, oh, Black History Month is here. Where's one of um, <laughs> Found one. You got 15 minutes. And you just have to, like, pick a person and tell their... No, so I would have to do, like, it was, an, it was a whole assembly, and I would have to talk about basically what it was like to be a 15-year-old black person. So it's more like Black Present Month. Kind of, yeah. It wound up, I think, I remember at one point getting, like, starting a discussion throughout the school because in my graduating class there were maybe... Out of, I think, 400 kids, there were maybe 11 black students. And people would always get mad that we sat together at lunch. And, it was, and so I went on some angry screed about how, like, you always get mad at us, but you all sit together all the fucking time. You've never sat with us. You're all, like... There's so many more of you sitting together. And then for the rest of the day, all the classes, the conversations, like geometry was not about geometry anymore. <laughs> it, was, it was truly like other students coming to me and they were like, in a weird way, uh, thank you. Because we just had to talk about what, it didn't have a term as white privilege <laughs> at the time, but they were like, we had to talk about being white but it was just a room full of white people, and we didn't have to do trigonometry. <laughs> and that's what I've learned. When it comes to race relations, there are some people who would rather talk race relations if you give them the option of trigonometry. <laughs> so you don't talk about any of that in the bit directly, but how does that, how's that experience in the joke sort of subtextually or in the background? Well, I think it's, it's one of those things that Black History Month is such a strange thing because there is this aspect of it that 
this is great that this exists, but also it feels like, well, wait a minute. There are, like, not just black people, women, Asians, Latinos. There are so many people who are part of the American story, and it's almost as though we're saying, yeah, but not the full American story, and we're not going to incorporate you in the entire narrative. We're just going to put you in this small little section. What took that from a feeling that you've had through even years of doing comedy to a thing like now I'm going to bring it up on stage and do a joke about it? That's a good question that I don't have an answer to. All right, we'll move on to the next All right. hopefully good question. I'm going to give you all a little lesson here. Whenever you find yourself in an interview situation, you don't have to answer all the questions. But you should answer most of them. Eh. All right, we'll see. It's kind of like when, they, uh, when you do like the SATs. They say, if you don't know the answer to a question, don't answer it. You won't get penalized for it, which is also bullshit. Answer, <laughs> just answer something. I did that once. I had to take an entrance exam uh, to get into a school, and they said, if you don't know the answer, uh, don't answer it. I was, let me just preface this by saying I was 14. Uh, and so I was like, oh, okay, by that logic, if I just find two that I know and I answer those two, I'll be great. And so I answered two questions and then I took a nap. And it was an entrance exam to get into a, a school and there were all these other kids that were all, like, freaking the fuck out because they, like, they were just like, we have to get into school. And I was just like, I'm cool, I'm whatever. And then I took a nap, and they, I think then they were just like, oh, we're screwed. And what they didn't know was that, yeah, no, Dum Dum didn't get into the school. Uh, so the joke has sort of lots of different parts in it. There's a Black History Month, and it goes from Selma to Brad Pitt to Marvel movie teasers to then the whole Captain America part. You know, why is, what connects them all to be one joke? I think for me, when I write jokes... I tend to write jokes as independent little things, and then at some point, I'll start to notice threads between them. And so all those jokes were jokes that I had written independently of each other and then started to notice, oh, okay, there's a thread here, there's a thread here, and now maybe I can add a little connective tissue so it all feels like a complete kind of essay. Yeah, because there's the Selma part sort of jigsaw puzzles its way to be like, gets you from there down to Captain America. Right. But I had been kind of talking about just the fact that Brad Pitt had produced Selma and 12 Years a Slave and gave money uh, and helped after hurricanes. That was just a thing that I thought was silly on its own and just kept saying sort of apropos of nothing. And then at some point it was like, oh, yeah, here's a way to kind of connect this to something else. Uh, but, yeah, I just found it funny that, oh, he's, he's really carrying the water for a lot of white people right now. Like, somebody should help him. Like, and George Clooney, get on it. Like, don't make him carry this load all by himself because it starts to look weird. So, I mean, you mentioned that's a silly part of it. I mean... I think this this joke is similar to a lot of your material in that, like, there's parts that are harder to swallow, and then there's parts that are sillier. You know, how do you... 
how do you walk that balance? How do you find that balance? I think you find it mainly with the audience. I, I think with any joke, it's really you kind of find the limits. You find where, okay, we went too far. Okay, we didn't go far enough. And, oh, that was silly or that was uncomfortable. And you, you get a sense of what the room feels like, the tension in the room. Uh, I feel like sometimes with a joke, especially if you can create a sense of, of tension, there is this, like, just this real, like, tense moment that the air kind of gets sucked out of the room. And then if you can get the right punchline, it just undercuts it in this very fun and silly way, almost as though, you know, if it were... If, like, let's say you were watching something where a phone call happens and all of a sudden you found out that the princess of uh, the UK had been kidnapped and <laughs> you're just sort of with this guy. What's he going to do? Like, it's his job and he has to scramble and go into the office in the middle of the night and then it's like, what is the demand of the prime minister in this moment right now and there's so much tension and you're just like what is gonna happen and then they say you gotta fuck a pig so you also performed this joke on your last record furry dumb fighter and essentially like it's word for word almost exactly the same how deliberate are you with wording are you like at some point writing it down to make sure it's like that i write jokes down and I write them over and over again so that I kind of get a sense of them. But usually when I'm on stage, there's a fair amount of it where, okay, I know, you know, you've practiced something, you've done it a hundred times, but I'm not necessarily treating it like a stage play. I, I think I also will change words from time to time or if I get lost or something like that, I can shift gears. I, I, I do think that with many of the jokes I write, I do try to write them in these modular ways that if I need to cut time short, I can start doing the math in my head of, okay, I'll pull this part out, yeah. and I can sort of get here and get to the end. Speaking of specific wordings, uh, you say the N-word in the joke? or Well, you're quoting Captain America, but you... Sure, I don't say it. I didn't say it at all. It was Captain America. So you're willing to have Captain America say it. No, but you, in, I think, your first special, you, you have a bit about and about the N-word. How do you feel about using it in your act? I, for me, it's one of those things that I feel like in that joke, it's making... Uh, a point about something. I don't... It's not anything that... I think when I say nigger, I don't say it. Uh, just, like, whenever I go to, like, get a McRib or anything like that, <laughs> I'm gonna walk in and just like, hey, nigger, what's going on? This nigger's hungry. Get a McRib. I, I don't... I, I feel like I try to be judicious about it. Uh, although now that I think about it, I think the next time I go to McDonald's, I know what the fuck I'm doing. <laughs> um, but no, I think it's... I, I, I try to be judicious about using it in, for, the, for the point of something. And so with that and with that 
aspect, with that part of the joke in particular, it was, to me, just making a joke about the idea of, yeah, a character like Captain America, you know, with so many comic book characters, we kind of have to keep changing their histories as time goes on. And so to me, that's something, that's something that I've always found interesting, partly because there are people who seem okay with that as comic book fans, but then will sometimes lose their minds when you say, let's make Thor a woman, or let's make a black Spider-Man. And it's just like, wait, so you'll lose your mind about that. Yeah. But if we decide to like take Tony Stark through time and say, oh, okay, he got hurt in a conflict in Afghanistan, like nobody's like, no, it's got to be the Korean War. So, I mean, you just there represented a, a deep amount of knowledge about comic books. So, in all of your hours, you have at least one joke that references comic books. What makes it an effective kind of source of material for your stand-up? I think, one, it's just something that I really enjoy. And I feel like I'm lucky in that we're at a time now where more people are aware of comic books and more people are aware of science fiction and fantasy and things that I was into as a kid. It, it, there, there is this strange thing that it does kind of feel like for this moment, like comic books and especially superheroes have kind of replaced cowboys and westerns as the thing that, you know, there was a time when movies were just westerns and they were just cowboys everywhere and i imagine if there had been some enterprising person back then there would have been like the new york western convention <laughs> where you could like meet john wayne or something but it just it feels like we're at this particular moment where it's an appreciation of that has come out of the sort of dark corners uh, that it used to be. So it's, 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 it also makes for a nice, a nice analogy that you can use to talk about things, to, to talk about these things where people are like, oh, okay, yeah, I know, I know comic books. It's not, it's not just a weird, like, it's not just, oh, those weird guys who hang out in that one little corner sure. in a strip mall. Yeah. Like that, I mean, that to me, I, I was in Philadelphia and I went to... There's a comic book shop out there, Amalgam Comics. And uh, if you're ever in Philadelphia, you should go to the, this comic book shop. It was, when I was a kid, what I wished a comic book shop was in that they very much want to engage with the community. They have a coffee shop, but they'll do like things for kids where they have screenings and stuff. And I remember the comic book shop I went to if somebody, you know, when I was 12, if somebody my age walked in, people just looked at you like, what the fuck are you doing, interloper? And then you would kind of quietly just go and, like, grab the comics you wanted, and you never made eye contact, and you just kind of, like, put them on the counter because they made the counter taller than 12-year-olds. And you just handed your money, and then they were like, get out of here until you're old enough to then, like be miserable with us. <laughs> 
Hey, it's me, Jesse. I just want to take a, a quick moment for an ad break. Good One is brought to you by the all-new season of Baskets, premiering Tuesday, January 23rd at 10 p.m. on FX. The critically acclaimed comedy stars Emmy-nominated Zach Galifianakis in dual roles as twin brothers Chip and Dale Baskets, and Louie Anderson in an Emmy-winning performance as their mother, Christine. Yes, that's right, their mother. All at once a slapstick comedy and a family drama, Baskets follows Chip Baskets' pursuit of his dream against all odds to be a respected clown. See why the San Francisco Chronicle said it was comic genius. Watch the all-new season of Baskets, Tuesdays at 10, starting January 23rd on FX. Now, back to the show. In your new web series, a.k.a. Wyatt's Neck, you play a superhero. Well, you don't, you don't have powers, but you wore a mask and such. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so, but the majority of the story takes place during the day in like a, to compare to like what Seinfeld was, where he did stand up at the beginning and the end, but then you just saw his day-to-day life. Um, in so much as a comedian's life and a superhero's life mirror each other, you know, Black mirror each other. So how does the role of a superhero in society mirror that of a stand-up comedian? So when I had thought about doing this web series, I, part of it for me was I, I had been asked the question of like, oh, if you were going to do a show about your life as a comedian, what would it be? And I, I would take like meetings in L.A. and I would get that question a lot of like, what's your Louie? Like, that was what they... Like, they weren't even, like, massaging it. It was just out in the open, like, make a Louie. And so I, I thought about it, and I felt like, well, if I were to do a show... I am a comedian. I live in New York. There have been a lot of those shows about comedians who live in New York, and it kind of felt like we were at the peak sort of version of that, but that format has existed, and I think Seinfeld has done, you know, their, that's the sort of most famous version of that, of that format where you see the comedian on stage, you see them in their real life and how their real life speaks to what they talk about on stage. And I was trying to think, okay, if I wanted to do that format, is there a way to kind of subvert it? And if there is, is there another job like a comedian where... You work nights, and your days are free, and who you are in the job is not necessarily who you are out of the job, and people maybe don't fully understand what you do. And the first thing that came to mind was crime-fighting vigilante. (laughs) And that's really what it was, and I thought, oh, that could be kind of fun to then use these vigilante moments as the bookends and then have these stories that... Are that kind of speak to the real version of what a vigilante goes through. Yeah. And I, because I always thought about just certain aspects of being a vigilante that, you know, if you read enough comic books, Spider Man would, you know, web a guy to a lamppost and say, like, well, the cops will come for you and walk away. And there's a part of that where it's like, what's to stop somebody from just like, cutting them down or like that crook to be like hey like i'll give you a thousand dollars if you help me get out of this it just and so i liked the idea of thinking about okay there are real world consequences to a vigilante's actions and can i parallel them to real life things and so that that to me became fun and then also 
with the idea, thinking about it as a crime-fighting vigilante and thinking about it a little bit with comic book-like elements, could I create a narrative in those bookend moments that go, that could kind of live on their own of like, if you read the comic book, this is what the comic book was about and the real life stuff is just this sort of weird life between the panels. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you about sort of the setting of the clip, which is um, at Night Train, which was the weekly show that you hosted uh, for the last five years. Thank you. Thank and you. It, it's about uh, to end its run. So, you know, I was wondering, you, sh- you obviously created the show for a reason. You know, what were you hoping, what were you expecting, and then what have you found from it? Um, I was hoping uh, to get $10 million, <laughs> to make $10 million by just hosting a very low-ticket-cost show in a weird part of Brooklyn for 300 people. That's what I was hoping, to make $10 million over five years, and I did not do it. Um, I, didn't, I didn't necessarily have a hope. It, it, it was one of those things that I, was, I had been asked by the, uh, the producer of the show, Marianne Ways, uh, produced the show before it, which was a show called Hot Tub with Kurt Brownoller and Kristen Schaal, and, yeah, and Kurt and Kristen had moved to Los Angeles, and so I was asked, hey, would you want to do this? And I thought, oh, it'd be kind of fun, and it'd be uh, a fun way to just have to have a show to force me to write every week and to see a bunch of different comedians. And in the process of doing it, we sort of built it and turned it into a thing that I think we were both, Marianne and I were both very proud of as far as creating a show that both established comedians and -and up-and-coming comedians wanted to perform at and that audiences were excited for all the comedians. I think a lot of times when you do a, a comedy show, you know, people will turn out for a name they know. And so they they'll get excited when they see the, you know, it's like, oh, Patton Oswalt's going to be on the show. And that's the one person they want to see. And they kind of cross their arms until Patton Oswalt shows up. And then they clap, and they have a great time, and then they cross their arms again. And it becomes this weird gauntlet that you have to yeah. kind of go through as a comedian. And I, didn't, I wanted to make a show that didn't do that, where the audience came knowing that we curated a fun show and that they should never cross their arms and just have fun. Uh, And so, yeah, I think walking away, we're going to walk away at exactly five years, uh, which is what the fortune teller said. (laughs) And so it'll be five years, and then uh, it'll turn into a different show that uh, called Butter Boy that Joe Firestone, Aparna Nancherla, and Maeve Higgins will do. And so... That'll be its own thing, and that's what also it feels like with these things. You, 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 unless you make $10 million, you can't do them forever. Yeah. I was reading an interview with you, and you're, you're talking about the, the sort of fallout of the WTF interview and sort of the confrontational experience of how people reacted to it. Sure. And I don't want to sort of relitigate sort of any of that, but I, I, I want to see, especially with this venue, 
is there something freeing knowing that the people are there that are the people that actually know who you are? You mean with Night Train? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, I think with any show, it's... And with Night Train, one of the things that I think we really try to do is just create a, uh, a show that was inclusive. And I think, for me, that's been one of those things that I, I think if anybody listened to that Marin podcast, what I was talking about was being a minority in a room where I'm the only minority, I'm the only person of color in the room. And when uncomfortable conversations happen, they become even more magnified when there's one person who becomes the, you know, whether they want to or not, they bear the burden of it and bear the responsibility of it. And... So I think with Night Train, one of the things that we wanted to do with the show was always try to make a show that was inclusive, that when I started doing stand-up, I would go do shows, and the shows were so segregated where if you were at a club, the shows would be oftentimes a lineup of seven people, and it was six white guys, and there was room for either a woman or a person of color. And when they introduced the woman, they would always say, now who's ready for a lady? <laughs> Which feels like so weird yeah. as though, you're not saying this person's funny, you're just saying they have a gender. <laughs> um, and so, and there were so many shows like that where whether it was that or whether there were shows like Latino Night, there was Refried Fridays, which was a show that was just all for Latinos, and there was chopstick comedy, and they were, and it was just so segregated, and it felt like, to me, funny is funny, and what's unfortunate is that these comedians aren't being allowed to operate in rooms for everybody, and that everybody can laugh and say, okay, I find that person funny, and I don't just have to find them funny because they look like me. Because uh, I think that that seems like a dangerous uh, little rabbit hole you get, you send yourself down. Yeah. I, I wanted to talk about uh, Brooklyn both as like a literal place in which you've been doing stand-up and sort of the idea of Brooklyn, which I feel like you've been exploring both in your stand-up and now in AKA Wyatt Snack. Uh, why is Brooklyn like a muse for you or how is it? Um, I guess it's a muse for me because I live there and I don't like to come into the city that often. I, I spent a lot of time in Brooklyn as a kid. I was born in New York, and my grandmother lived in Crown Heights. And so I think for me, getting to come back to New York as an adult and getting to live in New York, Brooklyn, there is a part of it that I feel this connection to that I'm reminded of moments of hanging out with my grandmother and my Uncle Paul in Prospect Park or just going to the Fulton Mall, and, and now the Fulton Mall has, has changed, but there, is, it, there are these very sort of nice full circle things of even being in the Fulton Mall for AKA Wyatt Snack. We, we screened it at the Alamo Draft House in, in the Fulton Mall there, and 
it's weird because it's very much the new Brooklyn, yeah. but there is also this aspect of it that is that feels kind of full circle for me yeah. where I remember going through this place as a kid and buying, you know, my grandmother buying me outfits that my mother would then immediately throw away <laughs> because they were so terribly, like, terribly made and really loud. When I was a kid... I love just really loud things. These pants should be no surprise. But I had, like, my grandmother and I went to the Fulton Mall and I bought, like, a three-piece suit that was paisley. Just one paisley over the whole suit. I was six, and I thought it was great. And my mother took a photo of me in it, sent it to my grandmother, and then burned the suit. But there are these full-circle things of, Whenever I, I go anywhere in, in Brooklyn, there, it just feels like, oh, okay, the city is changing, but there are these elements of, oh, yeah, I remember being here as a kid. And so it's, I, I think I, I was very fortunate that my grandmother was a very magical person to me. Yeah. And so Brooklyn then became an extension of her and of that magic. And, uh, yeah, for me, getting to spend as much time in it means a lot yeah <laughs> it's time for the laughing round so it's like a lightning round because it's comedy it's laughing round oh, okay do you have a favorite joke joke like a street joke the first joke i ever learned as a kid was uh if you're rushing to go into the bathroom and you're german when you leave what are you in the bathroom? European. As a person who's been uh, Muppetized, would you say why it's an act is a, a chaos or an order Muppet? So there's a theory that there's only two types of Muppets, I thought, which is there's chaos Muppets that do chaosy things and order Muppets who are like organized the chaos Muppets. Did you all know this? I thought this was like a very famous Muppet theory. I'd never heard that. Well, now that you know what it is, do you think you're a chaos order? Am I a chaos pup Muppet or an order Muppet? I think I'm just, I think I'm just a getting by Muppet. I think I'm like, uh, like, I'm like Zoot from the Electric Mayhem Band. Like, Zoot's not chaos. Zoot's not order. Zoot's just there. Just hanging out, playing his saxophone. Do you have a joke that uh, never works, but you will go to your grave thinking it's funny and keep on wanting to make it work? You know, audience don't, audience don't get it, but you believe it is funny. No. Right? No. As you said, you don't have to answer every question. So, uh, if you... But I did answer it, and I, my answer was no. no. I you, feel pretty good about... No. I feel pretty good about the arsenal I have. If you could uh, steal someone's joke, but no one would find out about it, and you, you wouldn't get in trouble for it, you just get to have their joke, what joke would it be? So any comedian's joke of all time. If I could take another comedian's joke... It's, I don't know if I would steal it. It's one of my favorite jokes, though, and it's a joke. 
There's a comedian named Jerry Minor, and it's not a stand-up joke. Yeah, Jerry. Um, he's great. Thank you. Yeah. Jerry would do this thing on stage, and he, he rarely would do it. And it was great, because he would come out, and he would be introduced as Michael Winslow from the Police Academy movies. <laughs> and let me just preface this. This is Jerry Minor's joke. Uh, he would come out, and he would be introduced as Michael Winslow from the Police Academy movies. And so then he would say, hi, I'm Michael Winslow from the Police Academy movies, but I'm not here to talk to you about comedy today. I want to talk to you about something very serious. Uh, there was a man in Jasper, Texas, who was killed because of the color of his skin. And he gets very serious. He starts to tell, uh, talk about it. And he's just like, it's horrible in this day and age that racists still exist, that they thought it was a good idea to just get in their truck. Chikung. Chikung. <laughs> And then he continues to tell the story, doing sound effects. And every time the audience laughs, he gets mad and he's like, A man died! Stop it! And then he gets back into the story. And it was such to me, the first time I ever heard him do it, I was rolling on the floor. My friend Wendy Molyneux and I were both like on the floor with tears in our eyes, just laughing so hard because it was, to me, the sort of perfect joke of being both pointed and talking about something that was truly uncomfortable but also exists and that people are kind of happy to just take and put in the back of their minds. And he's bringing it to the front where you can't ignore it, but then also making it so silly and ridiculous. And at some point, the joke just turns, and it just becomes funny to him. And it was such a great joke. And I, yeah, that is perhaps one of my favorite jokes. And if you ever see Jerry Minor, make him do the joke for you. If you see him on an airplane or you see him on the street, stop him and just make him do the joke. Because he doesn't, he, Jerry's one of those people that he does a thing and he just, he'll do it like once or twice and then he never does it again. Uh, which is why if you ever see him performing somewhere, you should go see him. Uh, last question, do you have anything else you want to say about Black Mirror? I do. If, you know, Charlie's looking to farm out an episode... I have a computer. Um, I, I know that Rashida Jones got to do one. I'm not Rashida Jones, but I have won three Emmys. Wyatt Sinek. Thank you, everybody. That's it for another episode of Good One. You can listen to Wyatt's last album, Furry Dumb Fighter, wherever you stream music, and watch AKA Wyatt Snack on Topic. Follow Wyatt on Twitter, at Wyatt Sinek. Good One is produced by Jennifer Lai and Sarah Barrett. Justin D. Wright did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please! And hey, if you know anyone who might, you know, like the podcast, maybe tell them. What the heck? You can email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com. I am Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. We'll be back next Monday with a new episode. Have a good one. 